It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Friday, December 16th. This is your KVMR Evening News. After vocal groups criticized CAL FIRE for antiquated and inexcusable maps, the state's fire agency released new updated wildfire hazard maps. Details on the decades-long process ahead on the California Report. We've got a look at local news and your weekend weather forecast before intern news producer Julia Jem stops in to report on December 15th's community webinar, focusing on the Idaho-Maryland Mine Economic Impact Report. Then KVMR's Felton Pruitt speaks with Bodie Wagner, fresh off playing Hospitality House's annual Night of Giving. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez reporting today from Lake Tahoe. Big news in California's solar market. State utility regulators have approved a controversial proposal that will change how future owners of rooftop solar systems will be compensated for the excess power they produce that's fed into the grid. KQED's Dan Brecky reports. The five-member California Public Utilities Commission voted to approve a plan that attempts to correct imbalances in net energy metering, the system that pays rooftop solar owners for excess power they produce. Critics of that system, including PG&E, says it shifts more than $3 billion a year in grid costs to ratepayers who don't have solar panels. The rooftop solar industry has pushed back, arguing that changing the net metering formula will kill demand for new systems and hurt the state's fight against climate change. The plan the commission approved includes a deep cut in the rate that future rooftop solar owners will receive for excess power exported to the grid. For the California Report, I'm Dan Brecky. And the redesigned solar subsidy program will take effect in April of next year, giving people a few months to install solar systems under the current compensation rates. After years of promising to do so, CAL FIRE, the state's fire agency, has released new updated hazard maps to help Californians determine if they live in places that face increased wildfire risk. The interactive maps were more than a decade in the making and comes after groups voiced criticism of CAL FIRE, calling the department's maps antiquated and inexcusable. CAP Radio's Chris Nichols explains the latest maps indicate numerous California communities face moderate to high to very high fire risk. In northern California's Sierra Nevada mountains, the communities near where the Caldor and Dixie fires burned in 2021 face very high risk, according to the map. And there are very high risk areas across the state, from the coastal range north of Sonoma and Napa to the mountains north of Los Angeles and east of San Diego. And government agencies rely on these maps when making decisions on where new homes and businesses should be approved. You can find the new maps on the Office of the State Fire Marshal's website. And now to a preview of our sister show, the California Report's weekly magazine. This week, sea level rise poses a threat to California's coastline. But we often don't think about how rising waters could push contaminants into neighborhoods, especially places near former military or industrial sites. Around half of those sites in California are located in the Bay Area. KQED's climate reporter Ezra David Romero takes us to one of these communities, Marin City. Marin City is this like bowl of a town north of San Francisco, five miles north of the Golden Gate Bridge. It's a community of around like 3,000 people um, right next to Highway 101. And it's a historically black community. And 
black people moved here from the south um, during the 1940s to build ships in, in the shipyard there. Nestled at the foot of beautiful Mount Tamalpais on the shores of San Francisco Bay. This was the site for America's finest shipyard, a salt marsh and a rocky hill. So they know that the shipyard was near their community, and they think the contamination in their communities from there, but they're not exactly sure because they don't have the data to back that up. You know, they've mapped out where they believe pollution is, and they don't have the funds or state support to test that, much less the money to test their own bodies, you know, even though they have community lore about people getting sick and getting cancer in their community. You know, they are worried about sea level rise in their future and how contaminants could move around as the seas rise, but it's not just a worry about sea level rise there. They're already having these big atmospheric river storms that cause flooding, and there's concerns that those floodwaters could also have contamination in it. We stay swimming. Chinaka Green and her son waded through knee-deep water, trying to get home. Just coming from a football game, and we stuck in a puddle. She told me the floodwaters mixed with sewage gushing from a utility hole. It freaked me out. We took off everything and put it in the bag and threw it away. Storms like this are a precursor of what's to come in the climate crisis, more severe downpours and surging seas. Both are consequences of burning fossil fuels globally. By the end of the century, sea level rise could flood half of all commercial properties in Marin City and inundate homes. One person who's worried about this and sounding the alarm over the lack of investment here is Terry Harris-Green. We all know about what happened October the 24th with the atmospheric river, right? All of this flooding, three and a half, four feet of flooding. The IJ didn't put it in the paper. Oh, no. They put in the paper that other places had 12 inches. But what about the three and a half, four feet that we've had? What about that? What about the fact that folks had to walk through the contaminated waters in order to get back home? What about that? Terry was speaking at a rally last spring. She's really passionate about all this because she had cancer herself, and she believes the cancer is linked to contamination near her home. Too many of our folks have been dying. Too much sickness and disease is happening and been happening in our community. You can hear more of Ezra David Romero's reporting about how sea level rise and flooding could bring toxic contamination into mostly black and brown communities in the Bay Area on this week's California Report magazine. Tune in on some public radio stations or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for the California Report comes from Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. Stanford Healthcare, alerting listeners to the critical blood shortage in the area. Now is the time to donate blood and make a difference. StanfordBloodCenter.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, which bets early on exceptional people making the world better, on the web at SchmidtFutures.com. 
And that's the California Report for Friday, December 16th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Brendan Willard, Jim Bennett, Christopher Beal, and Chris Hoff. Our producers are Amanda Stupai and Keith Mizuguchi. Our senior editor is Angela Corral. Our interim director of news is Keith Sung. Our vice president of news is Ethan Tovin Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm your host, Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great day. Let's take a look at today's local news. Placer County has been awarded $2 million in CAL FIRE grant funding to develop the Cabin Creek Biomass Facility in North Lake Tahoe. Right about now, you might be wondering what a biomass facility is. The Placer County press release announcing the news states that the facilities aim to reduce wildfire risks and improve forest management practices. They, quote, create renewable energy by burning wood scraps left over from forestry operations or residential defensible space clearing. They also generate heat and a byproduct called biocar that could be used as fertilizer and in water filtration processes. In contrast to open pile burning, a common method currently employed by public agencies, which reduces wildfire fuel loads but creates smoke and releases carbon into the atmosphere, Biomass facilities trap carbon and other pollutants while reducing fuel loads. However, not everyone is on board with the substantial claims made about biomass facilities. As reported in The Guardian, last year more than two dozen environmental groups, including Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth, penned a letter to government officials in the UK questioning claims made by the facilities. Back here in Northern California, a decades-old conditional use permit for a potential biomass facility at Placer County's Cabin Creek property near Truckee was just renewed. The county's Board of Supervisors say they're exploring the feasibility of a facility at the site. In addition to the Cabin Creek grant and project, the North Star Community Services District, located between Truckee and Lake Tahoe, received a $2 million grant for its own small biomass facility. Depending whose lawn you drive by, you may see either a protect our air, water, quality of life, no mine, or a yes, Idaho, Maryland mine, yard sign. Opinions may differ, but one thing that seems consistent across the board is that people sure have them when it comes to Rise Gold Corporation. KVMR intern news producer Julia Jem joins us with the latest in the Rise Gold, Idaho, Maryland mine saga. Thursday, on December 15th, Nevada County hosted an online webinar to review the results of the economic impact report they commissioned from independent consultant Robert D. Niehaus, Incorporated. In this segment, I'll be referring to the independent consultant as RDN. Prior to the webinar, attendees were encouraged to submit questions in advance, and in addition to that, there would also be a live question and answer period, which would occur after the general presentation was complete. The report was split into six sections, Introduction, Project Summary, impact and project expenditures, impact of property values, utilities, public services, and general fund, and summary of impacts, though the general topics discussed during the presentation were as follows. Property values, rise Grass Valley, employment, mineral property tax, mineral reserves, the cleanup of the centennial site, county costs, early mine closure, economic effects of environmental concerns, and alternative land uses. The report was discussed in a way that was potentially easier for members of the public to understand, and many questions and ideas were explored during the presentation. In the report, we learned that some of Rise Gold's initial claims were downgraded, like their projections of generating more than $12 million a year in local spending, which was reduced to less than $5 million. 
In addition to that, Rise Gold had claimed that the project would generate 300 indirect jobs, which RDN clarified would more realistically turn out at about 163. All of those 163 jobs are considered full-time equivalent, meaning that two part-time jobs equals one full-time job. And the outputs of the implant model are not specific enough to determine the number of jobs that would include benefits, or the levels of those benefits. The report's study assessed county revenues from a low-end scenario and a high-end scenario. RDN stated that on the high end, revenue from the mine would provide a 2.1 increase in the county's general fund, and on the low end, it would provide about 0.4%. RDN explained that in the event of a low-end scenario, if the project proponent did not find any additional proven mineral reserves after three years of construction and ramp-up and eight years of minimal extraction, they would run out of reserves to extract, and the mine would close after year 11. Public perspectives on these issues will be discussed on MineWatch's upcoming webinar on December 20th. For KVMR, I'm Julia Jem. Now turning our attention to your forecast from the National Weather Service. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight, clear with a low around 32. Saturday, sunny with a high near 52. Patchy fog rolls in before 9 p.m., otherwise clear with a low around 29 degrees. Sunday, sunny with a high near 48. Patchy fog before 9 p.m., otherwise mostly clear with a low around 31 degrees. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, widespread dense freezing fog after 10 p.m., mostly clear with a low around 12 degrees. Saturday, freezing fog before 10 a.m., sunny with a high near 40. Sunday, freezing fog before 10 a.m. as well, sunny with a high near 39. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight, patchy dense fog after 1 a.m., otherwise mostly clear with a low around 31 degrees. Saturday, dense fog before 10 a.m. with widespread frost, mainly before 9 a.m., otherwise sunny with a high near 52. Sunday, mostly sunny with a high near 52. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Up ahead, KVMR's Felton Pruitt speaks with musician Bodie Wagner. What pivotal role did Bananas play on Bodie's 1978 tour? Find out coming up. We're talking with Bodie Wagner. He's one of the longtime musicians in our area and in my life as well. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Bodie. Hey, thanks a lot for having me, Felton. You played at the uh, Night of Giving last night, uh, the Benefit for Hospitality House. With my son, Jackson fun night we got to do a little bit of harmony yodeling we don't get to do that too often but every now and then (laughs) we get out our toys and play with them like that now it was pretty appropriate to have you at the night of giving because there's of course something that was started by utah phillips and uh, you go back with uh, utah for quite a ways don't you yeah we met in the spring of 1972 because my brother was putting on a a festival up in Northland College in Ashland, Wisconsin, I think it was. And Phillips was playing there, and I was out street singing on a bridge, and we had been waiting for Phillips to give him a ride up to the festival. And we didn't know each other, but he saw me street singing on the street there and put some money at. That's how we got to know each other that weekend. So you were busking, and uh, Utah comes up and throws some money in the hat, and then you guys became, uh, well, p- pals for the next 30 years. Well, for nearly 36 or so. It was a long time. I showed up at the Philly Festival that summer, 
And he saw me out in the crowd and got me up on stage for a tweener between John Prine and someone else. But I just heard about John Prine from my big brother, Pop, who had been doing a lot of work with Prairie Home. Uh, back in the old days, he used to sometimes play in the Powder Milk Biscuit Band, and he'd do a lot of stuff on Garrison's show. So that was part of the connection back east and all in the Midwest there. So how did you become involved with Kate Wolf and Shea Greenwood? Well, that was interesting because the first time I really toured around the West Coast was just before I went into doing my alternative service, which would have been 1970, the year I got out of high school. And I got out of my alternative service, did that festival where I met Phillips, and ended up going out to the West Coast and hitchhiking up and down. So I was basically just passing the hat then. And I was sort of thinking that I would be a truck driver or a factory worker or something. And I figured, well, I'll street sing and busk a little bit like we used to do when we were kids and just see what happens. And one thing led to the next. And, you know, before I knew it, I was playing in festivals. And and then Phillips got me onto the stage at Philly and that ended up getting me. And I was also friends with Jim Ringer and some folks like that. So. You know, it just all started to come around. And then we recorded in 74 up at at Philo Records, and that's in Vermont, and eventually ended up back this way. I remember when I was at KFAT, you know, I I was a story I told last night on stage is that uh, when I got to KFAT, they showed me all the Utah Phillips records, learn all about Utah Phillips. They showed me all Kate Wolf stuff, learn about Kate Wolf. And then they showed me an, an album from you and it was called hobo right yeah which i guess was your first philo release that was that was the only philo release yeah that I, yeah i did two other releases one was an independent thing that i did by myself and then i did a kids album which was for gentle wind records back east back in albany new york and i also recorded a couple other tapes i did a bootleg and 98 or something like that and then i also did a re-release of a couple of the earlier recordings a few years back so that's basically what's recorded and out there we're talking with bodie wagner who performed at the night of giving last night now i was gonna tell a story uh when i was emceeing you last night but we didn't have time because you got ready so fast we were all i didn't want to waste time um, but there's this one great story about, now, you used to hang out with Kate Wolf and Che Greenwood, and you told me a story about you and Che doing a gig. I guess he had broken his arms or something, and you were driving, and it goes on, but then Bananas became involved. Yeah, what the deal was is I didn't have a license, and he had this truck, this 1942 Ford pickup. We're talking about Che Greenwood here. Yeah, Che Greenwood had this old 42, and he was living in Kate Wolf's, basically her office out behind her house, and I was staying in her garage, which had a little apartment with a cowboy wallpaper on and stuff like that, a little cot, you know, a little desk and a lamp and stuff like that. So I had just come out to California to kind of start finding my way and thinking about sort of making this a base of operation somewhere on the West Coast instead of the East. And so, you know, we were all sitting around there, and I had a gig that came up, and this would have been 78 or so. I had a string of gigs that went up north and came back down. It was either Greyhound or Hitchhiking. 
And uh, Che didn't have anything to do. And I said, well, you want to drive me up there? And both of his arms were broken. He had fallen down an embankment and caught himself. And so both of his elbows were locked at 90 degrees in a cast, both of them. <laughs> so he couldn't shift his pickup truck. His long <laughs> big old pickup trucks with big steering wheel, you know. But he could steer. So <laughs> I didn't have a license. He couldn't shift, and so we both got in the truck, and we, I think we, I'm not sure if that was the time we drove down to KFAT and played there, but we did a couple of trips like that, and then we ended up going up to the north, northwest there, went up to, uh, I think the top of the tour was Arcade or something like that. We had a little string of gigs going up there and little clubs, and I uh, ran out of, ran out of uh, albums on the way. And, you know, he's he's steering, I'm shifting, and I'm trying to find albums wherever we go. And we ran out, and they couldn't find them in the stores. So we pulled over, and I got a bunch of bananas. <laughs> I signed those bananas so I could sell autographed bananas, because everybody had expected me to have albums to autograph, you know. And so they sold like hotcakes, and we did it for the rest of the tour. But that was... Uh, that, tour story a lot cheaper to produce a banana than it is to produce an album yeah right yeah <laughs> and they're really available a lot easier to find than a file of record at a record store back in those days all right Bodie. how how can people find out where you're playing and, and how can people get your music well the music is available mainly through me i think rounder might still have some of the old hobo albums i still have some of the old hobo albums too and i can be reached via Bodie Wagner at Gmail, if anybody's interested in buying any of that stuff. I have the uh, re-release, which is the old Hobo album and the Bodie Wagner album with a bunch of original stuff. Most of it's original. And I have a few things like that. The kids, the kids album is still available, I believe, through A Gentle Wind, which you can find online, I'm pretty sure. And uh, they have a lot of really cool kids stuff. But that's where you mostly find my stuff. And I haven't been playing a lot because I got a hand injury about a year and a half ago. And I just haven't been able to get back to playing instruments a whole lot lately. I kind of struggled through last night on the auto harp and found a couple chords on the banjo. But hopefully, eventually, I'll get back to it. Well, it was great seeing you last night, Bodie. And thanks for playing the Night of Giving. Yeah, it's always a good uh, good cause for the community that way, and and uh, I know Utah was uh, really meant a lot to him to help folks out that way, and it, I think it means a lot to everybody in the community to really help lift people and uh, get them down the road. We've been talking with Bodie Wagner, an old friend that I used to play on KFAT, and now we're still playing on KVMR. It's great to catch up with you, Bodie. Take it easy, Felton. We'll see you in a bit. That's our newscast for this Friday, December 16th. KVMR gets support from generous listeners like you and Ubidox Urgent Care since 2000, providing walk-in medical and urgent care, accepting most insurance. Open 8 to 6, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, Saturdays and holidays. Located in the Fowler Center, Grass Valley, ubidox.com. And The Miner's Foundry, presenting Foundry Sings for the Holidays, Sunday, December 18th, 7 p.m. 
This unique, countywide communal experience gathers people of all ages and singing levels to share in the power of seasonal holiday songs. MinersFoundry.org The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. As always, thanks for tuning in. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off. Have a great weekend.